One of the hardest jobs for a founder and CEO is to hire a great engineering team. And if you're based in the Bay, competing with the salaries of Google and Facebook does not make it any easier, which is why I'm really excited to introduce our next sponsor, Turing. Turing makes it really easy to build a software engineering team. Go to Turing.com and they will find you hand-selective top-tier engineers that can work with you on a remote basis. Turing.com is backed by Foundation Capital, Founders Fund, other execs from Google, Facebook, Amazon, and more. And they are on a path to help companies like you find a remote engineering team and not spend years doing it. So if this is interesting to you in any capacity, I would check out Turing.com, T-U-R-I-N-G.com. And when they ask you, how'd you hear about Turing, make sure to tell them you came from the Forward Thinking Founders podcast, specifically tell them Matt Sherman 6, 6 is in the month June, and get that remote engineering team today, not in six months, not in a year, today. And by the way, you get a two-week risk-free trial to give it a shot. So what are you waiting for? Go to Turing.com, T-U-R-I-N-G.com, and I'll see you over there. Now let's get into the show. Cool. All right. We are recording. Um, sweet. Well, uh, you were saying, so for people that just are tuning in, which is everyone, because they just started recording, we're talking with Jake Chapman on a Sunday Roundup today. Um, Jake, can you introduce yourself just lightly, and then we can go into what you were, what we were talking about before? Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, Jake Chapman. I'm a managing director and a co-founder of Alpha Bridge Ventures, which is a, a post-seed pre-series A uh, venture firm. Um, it's pretty pretty narrow slice to the market. We do a little bit in seed and pre-seed, but really our bread and butter is post-seed. And uh, I do most of my investing in deep tech, so like robotics and AI and autonomy, a lot of things with uh, national security and defense applications. How many times do you get pitched on an AI company where like they say they're AI, but they're, they're just like, it's just like a Boolean algorithm. Like it's not actually AI. Like how, 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 how do you actually determine whether something's truly machine learning or they're just faking it? I mean, probably most people that have AI in their deck somewhere, like are not like really pursuing like real AI or just like running something through like a commodity algorithm, right? Like a, uh, God, I can't remember who IBM bought, but uh, in one of my early startups, we used them. Anyway, yes, most AI companies are not really all that compelling. Yeah, I feel like there's like a there's like a relationship. Like the more someone mentions machine learning or AI in their description of their company, the less likely that that technology they they actually use. That's what I've learned from like just uh, conversations with plenty of startups. Anyways. Um, are you, are you the, what we were just talking about, is that public? Are we able to talk about that on like that investment or is that still private? No, no, we made it a while ago and I don't think the guys would mind. Um, cool. So, so, so yeah, yeah. So as you were saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, we, we kicked off this by talking about our mutual coffee addiction and drinking coffee in the afternoon and what that's likely to do to us. But, um, yeah, we invested in Mudwater, which is like a coffee replacement, I think end of last year. And uh, it's like one seventh the caffeine of coffee, but it's supposed to energize you just as much, maybe more. And I've replaced at least one, maybe two cups of coffee a day with mud water. It's so, like what I'll do is like I'll brew the first mud water or my, my first brewed cup of the day is usually mud water. And then 
you end up with some sediment at the bottom, the, the mud, if you will. Uh, and then I'll brew my coffee in that, which the mud water guys call a, a Venice highball. <laughs> I don't know if that's, the, if that's a PC term or not. Uh, and then like, I'll just keep using the same cup and like add some more mud water to it as, as like the day progresses. But it's a, uh, you should totally try it. It's good stuff. Well, I free I freaked out when when before we started recording. I freaked out when when he mentioned mud water because my fiance, literally a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, bought a, a mud water set and she slapped the 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 sticker on my Keurig saying "F your coffee." I'm like, so now I look at it every day, and now I have to try it. So is it a replacement for coffee or is it like a a supplement? So you have coffee and you have mud water. How is it supposed to be used? I, mean, I think most people have replaced their coffee habit with a mud water habit. Most of the subscribers. Um, I like to, to dabble with both. I just, I just, I just drink less coffee now than I used to. That's interesting. Have you seen, were you like a, I'm a pretty heavy coffee drinker. Unfortunately, I like drink a lot. Maybe I would say like maybe three cups a day on the low end, maybe four on the high end, probably not more than that. So I'm like pretty addicted to it have you seen people that are like fairly addicted to coffee wean themselves off of it with mud water? I mean, I'm a four cup a day person or I was before mud water. So I would say that I'm equally addicted. Yeah. Um, my first job out of high school was as a barista and uh, ne really never looked back. You know, I left the job, but I didn't leave coffee. Um, and I've mostly, not mostly, but I have like half weaned myself off of coffee. So yeah, I think it's totally doable. Got it. I'll have to I'll have to try it now because she I, like when she got it I'm like oh I like coffee like I'm I'm you know I I can't not drink coffee but now that you mentioned you invest in them and now it's like triangulation um which is like do you do you do as an investor and in a second we'll we'll get into some 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 trends that are going on in tech but I guess before that I'm curious do you ever use like triangulation where you hear about a product in this context and then you hear about it or a company in a completely different context that is unrelated but it's still that same company and then like it gets more serious to you as mo you hear more times about that product is that something that you that you like that that you i guess use as an investor or um because i find myself doing that a lot and like, i don't know if that's common with investors as well i mean i think it's hard to to not factor that into like how excited or interested you are in a company right like if you're at a party and you overhear someone talking about company x and then like you're chatting with a friend of yours who's an investor and they're like oh yeah i met with company x last week and then you get an email from company x like you're probably going to answer it right like once you start seeing that many different touch points with somebody it makes you feel like there's something there something going on um so it definitely like piques my interest yeah it's how it's how i pretty much there's a, one of the ways that I find guests for the podcast is that I like, I'm pretty into Twitter. I'm like, you know, I tweet probably like 17,000 times a day. And um, while I'm not tweeting, I'm watching and I'm observing. And when I feel like I've seen like five to 10 tweets about the same company, um, I always invite them onto the podcast. Cause like, there's something going on, you know, that, that like that obviously enough people are talking about where there's something worth it. Yeah. And sometimes if you, if you wait, like you can't always do that, right? You can't sit back and wait for this triangulation thing to happen organically. Uh, Cause often by the time some things you've seen like four touches with something, it's too late. Right. Like 
Clubhouse, you know, we're not going to beat Andreessen or Benchmark out for a deal. So by the time like Clubhouse blew up, it's too late, too late for us for the most part. Um, do you have any, like, do you have any idea what, like, what happened? Like, I mean, I mean, it's a hundred million. I don't want to necessarily criticize or, or, or talk up like the valuation. I kind of get it, but like, what was it like? Were there a ton of firms that were trying to get it, and then, like, benchmarks like that? Then like these two heavyweights just kind of kept kept going up, or how does that even happen? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, I I am sure that it was not just Benchmark and Andreessen who were fighting for it, right? So there's probably, you know, fifty other firms that are like tier two or tier three firms, like whose name you may or may not have ever heard before that were fighting for the deal and basically had no chance. And then, you know, if Benchmark and Andreessen were fighting for it, I'd be pretty surprised if like Lightspeed didn't at least like reach out and kick the tires and, you know, some of the other big firms that have like a real consumer like interest. Um, yeah. For people that, um, I actually want to stay around this for, for a second because there are some interesting questions that, that came up around it. But for people that don't know what we're talking about, there's this app uh, called Clubhouse that is pretty much an audio only, I guess, platform for people to chat on, but it's invite only. You need, you need, you need like know someone that's in it or like now you, you need, like it's too late. You can't get in unless they invite you. And it's like all these VCs are in it. So, you know, Hollywood celebs, it's like pretty hot. And they just raised a hundred, they just raised uh, at a hundred million dollar valuation for Mark uh, or from uh, uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Um, I kind of get the valuation I'm curious for you though, as a VC, do you think the response was justified? Like they got slammed. Like people, like they got, they were like, they got slammed by Twitter and by everyone's like, oh, 100 million, like 12 million, 2 million secondary. Like I kind of get it, but like, I don't know. Like, is that justified? Is it, I don't know. Like, what, what are your thoughts on the response of the fundraise, not necessarily the fundraise itself? Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, so I think that there were two responses to the fundraise, and let's, let's handle them separately. The first was that valuation was crazy. The second was, it was way too early for the founders to cash out, right? So two, two levels of criticism. On the valuation, I mean, for Andreessen Horowitz, a $10 million investment is a rounding error. And so you know, they're looking for companies that can potentially return a fund, which is a multi-billion dollar fund, which means you need a Facebook-sized company right, to do that. Uh, and those don't come along very often, right? Like once or twice a decade, maybe four or five times a decade tops. Um, so if you believe that Clubhouse has that potential, then the $100 million valuation, if that's what it takes to get into the deal, do it. It's $10 million, it doesn't matter. If you lose it, like it's not going to change their IRR. Uh, but if like Clubhouse takes off, then it's huge. Um, so I totally get the valuation and what they did. Obviously, a competitive deal. Um, so it makes a lot of sense. In terms of like the secondary thing, I think it's pretty interesting. So I think a lot of people came out and criticized one of the co-founders for selling and, and cashing out early, cashing out a little bit, presumably not very much um, at that valuation. And then like he sort of flipped the script on them because it turns out he has a, a sick kid and has like a nonprofit around finding cures for orphan diseases, which is, is what his, his child's suffering from. Uh, and like, obviously a lot of people felt really guilty about jumping on him. And so like, I think you never know someone's context or experience. So it's really hard to judge stuff like this. Right. 
Uh, also, like if you live in the Bay Area and you've got a family, like maybe you want to cash out half a million dollars so you can buy a house. Right? I think we're less, we are less down on founders taking some money off the table than most firms. For us, I think that, I think it's okay. I think founders should have enough money pressure in their life that they're still motivated to build what they're building. Although to be honest, most founders are not like extrinsically motivated. Like they're motivated to build up the building because like they want to see it exist in the world. And like the money doesn't matter that much. In which case I think that like they should take enough money off the table that like they are no longer stressed about personal, like basic financial things like paying the mortgage, like sending your kids to the right school or a good school, like taking care of your family. Like those stresses are really unnecessary in a founder's life. You've already got so much other stress. I say do it, take some money, like deal with like your basic like Maslow needs and then like just go out and build the company. How does, is, is that common for the, um, the first round of, of finance? Well, it, I want actually, let me rephrase, not common, but is it accepted for founders to do that if there's a good reason? And I'll just use me as an example because like something that I've thought about a lot, like I, you know, and then sometime in the next like, year to three years uh or me who knows how long it'll be but like i'll, I'll start a company and go and, get, and like make it happen but like at the same time i i have you know a pretty big pile of debt from my last company so like i've wondered do i raise enough to give myself a salary to like pay that off quickly or do i take some secondary um and i'm not i know i'm not the uh, from the first raise i know i'm not the only founder in those shoes like what what would what would you say to someone like that who like like they want to start a company they got some serious debt from their previous stuff but like the investor thinks they have a lot more upside like is taking secondary for that okay or not necessarily yeah i mean it's super uncommon to to do secondaries in a first round um even in like a series a it's usually pretty uncommon like it's not until like series b or series c where like you start to see that happen with more regularity um yeah, it's funny, you know, I was one of the first investors in Lambda School and I like distinctly remember having a text conversation with Austin one night, you know, probably like six months in to the company, so pretty early on. And I think this was like right before he raised from Sean McGuire at Google Ventures, maybe right afterwards. But he was like texting with me about like whether or not it was okay for him to like take a salary increase or to take a salary. Um, and like he just felt really guilty about it. I think a lot of founders feel that way, right? Like one of the things we say at, at Alpha Bridge is that like founders tend to eat last, right? Like they sacrifice themselves for their companies and for their employees. Um, and I basically told him the same thing I just said to you, which is like, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't be making, you know, a quarter million dollars a year right now. Like the company's not at that stage yet. Now, now it probably is, uh, but at the time, like it just didn't make sense. But like whatever you're like, current like money needs are you should make sure that they're taken care of like you shouldn't be sweating like the food you're putting on the table for your family at this point right like take something that's reasonable yeah that, that makes sense i remember he he tweeted something i don't know six months ago on the on the same lines of like i mean he, like just feeling guilty and he almost tweeted i feel like he tweeted at some point that like that conversation but anonymized you because like, he was like oh like I, like you know as we're doing so well like i don't i, I don't know how i should think about paying myself and he's just like such a missionary. Like the guy just wants to build a giant company and help 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 like the future of education. Like I, I love I love Austin. Um, so I wanna I wanna camp around 
um, not necessarily clubhouse, but just consumer. I feel like there's been a well. You're not really you don't you don't really look at consumer then, do you? You say if you do, if you do hard tech and you're doing AI and deep tech, do you even look at much consumer? Do you pass it along to investors that do do consumer? So I mean, as a, as a firm, we do consumer. My partner Howie is like mostly consumer focused. This is why we're in mud water. You know, that's not exactly a deep tech company. Um, so I look at a lot of consumer companies. I'm just not the primary like driver of those investments. Um, so I have exposure. It's just not like what I'm going out trying to find for myself. It kind of feels like because of COVID and maybe some other stuff, from my perspective, which is more of a founder perspective, consumer is kind of hot again. Like people are trying to like start consumer companies again. Um, do you do like? Do you think? I guess what what is the next, in your opinion, next like opportunity in consumer? Like, is it audio and you now it's funded, or like, like if someone wanted to build something in consumer, like where's the opening where Facebook won't already take it after the next like after six months of them starting? Yeah, good, good questions. I'm um, I think I'm more bearish on audio than most folks are clubhouse is, is really interesting uh, just because of like how engaged they were able to like make their audience uh, um, pretty impressive but like the reason i'm down on audio is the same reason why i would be skeptical about clubhouse which is like you can only consume so much audio content like you could, sure can you, you can listen to a podcast on 2x speed or one and a half x speed but like you can't you just can't get that much information. Like podcasts and audio are not very information dense, right? In in a society where like we're already bombarded by like information left and right, not necessarily knowledge, but just information, right? Like everyone's competing for your attention. There's just not a lot of room for audio. There will be a couple like big winners where people are like, okay, I'll give a couple hours of my day to this or an hour of my day to this, but you just can't have that much of it, right? Whereas like the written word, you, know, you can subscribe to 50 newsletters and skim them and like sort of pick and choose based on the day, which ones you're going to consume. You can read a lot of books, right? So bear, bearish on audio. Um, obviously I think, you know, given coronavirus and what the world's going to look like post coronavirus, I think there's a lot of consumer opportunity around that. Uh, you know, we've seen a ton of, of lift in our direct consumer companies um, during COVID. And I expect there'll be some regression to the mean um, once everyone kind of goes back to whatever the new normal is, but it's not going to be a complete regression. Yeah. it. I've recently uh, been learning more about consumer, um, but like really like, I guess like the, the future of consumer. Um, I, I think about, I don't know, a year ago, the first time I came across Shrug Capital, I'm like, what the heck is this? Like, this is a, like, this is like a, it's, I thought it was like a joke. Like I thought the firm was a joke, not because I'm being rude, but because like the way that they market, the way that Neve is. Um, but I, I then realized soon after that, like, that's just consumer. They're just like a consumer VC. So I like started to, to um, learn more about like avatars and digital presence and audio and stuff like that. And I don't know. I, I kind of think I'm pretty bullish on the consumer being uh, um, like not ad driven anymore, but very much so driven on these like micro micro subscriptions uh, and like subscription communities. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it just almost like instead of everyone following, you know, freaking Mark Andreessen on Twitter, um, Mark Andreessen charging two bucks a month or five bucks a month or whatever a month for like Markland. And then that, and that, you know, that being something and like if subscriptions driving consumer, like I do, you, what do you, what do you think about ads versus subscription for the future of consumer? Are ads still going to be dominant as they were 10 years ago? Um, I'm kind of betting that they're not, um, but you have a way better vantage point on this than I do. I mean, I don't think the advertising industry is ever going to go away, right? Like we'll always need some, some means or intermediary to help us discover new things. And the advertising industry exists for that purpose. Um, but yeah, I'm right there with you. I think subscription, like consumer subscription makes a lot of sense. Obviously Substack seems to have done a great job um, building out a community there. Um, we're beginning to build communities there. So I love that. Um, yeah. I mean like one of the opportunities I think there is in consumers, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Elliot Pepper, who's an author, sci-fi author. Um, highly recommend his books, but we were talking about like the future of like publishing and the future of books. You know, we had, you have, you've had books for thousands of years, depending on how you define a book, but, um, and the publishing industry and the book industry hasn't really changed, right? Like we have eBooks now and we have audio books, but those are just like really clunky ways of porting the traditional book into like technology without imagining like what a book looks like now that you have technology. And so I think there's really an opportunity to build like some new multiverses um, around like text content or maybe some like multimedia content um, that are like internet native. I think like Holloway Guide is doing something in this vein for nonfiction. And I think what they're doing is really interesting. Um, but like they started from first principles, right? Like what if we were going to publish a nonfiction book today? Like what should that look like? Um, it's a great thought experiment. And I think there's a lot to do. There's a lot of that can be ported over to fiction as well. So, uh, Yeah, I'm a huge fan of what Holloway is doing. They just announced, did you see they had a blog post where they're turning it a little more into a platform? And instead of them just publishing their own books, they're allowing people to publish, like self-publish through Holloway with the help of Holloway. Have you seen that? Uh, I've talked to Andy about it. I hadn't seen the blog post, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's honestly, it, you got all of these people that have written on the internet or, or writing on the internet over the last decade and you, and someone could ask them, yo, you should publish a book. Like I know for me, like I've been writing for about seven years. I don't know what the hell I would do. Like, I don't know how I would do that. And like, there's no, like, like, I think if you have a low friction way to publish a book, it's like magic. It's like the feeling of getting your, your first podcast up in an RSS feed, but that's been done for 10 years. The book books have not been, have not had that access yet. So I, I'm fully with that. I, I hope to be one of the, one of the early writers of a, of a Holloway book or a book published by Holloway because I do have many ideas. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's probably a great nexus to be had between like Substack and companies like that and Holloway guides and then the future of publishing, right? Like the tricky part of publishing a book is distribution. Like that's what you're really going to a publisher for and what you hire an agent for is like trying to figure that element out. Um, what's beautiful about Substack is it lets you build your like owned distribution list over time, right? So I can see uh, like Bill Bishop at Sinicism, you know, I mean, I'd be surprised if he doesn't already have a book deal, um, but he's got such a great built-in audience. like you can monetize that in ways outside of Substack as well once you've built it. 
Well, I read somewhere that I don't know if someone's doing this or this is just an idea, but instead of authors spending a year or however long writing a book and then publishing it, what if authors published it, uh, published a chapter every month or something on Substack, and then like, and then maybe you pay, maybe you charge for it, so it's like ten bucks a month or whatever, and then instead of the one point transaction where you you publish your book and people pay money for the book and it's one, you extract way more value and they feel closer to you as an author because they're following you writing a book every single every single month or you know a chapter every single month. That's probably what I'll do. Um, like when I decide to to write something. Um, I'll probably like include my subscribers and then I'll be able to publish a book, but, but like the value will mostly already been extracted from the process of writing it. Yeah. Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. Speaking of writing and, and whatnot, um, there's this company that I know you're familiar with. Um, cause everyone on Twitter is familiar with them right now that like helps organize thoughts and some for Rome, yeah, Rome. So I've been using Rome to help me organize my thoughts. And I'm just like, I just kind of want to camp around them for a second because they've done something pretty like ridiculous. Um, not so much on a product perspective, although the product is great, but like they started as a cult and now they're like, it's like, they're just this cult that's just gro- like growing in market share every single day. Like, do you mind sharing it? Um, do you use Rome or are you familiar with Rome? And if so, like, when did you first hear about it and how, what have you observed as like that company has grown on the Twitter sphere? Yeah. Rome is great. I love it. I'm, I'm addicted. So I definitely use it. Um, I was a total Luddite when it came to note taking. So I took, I took notes pre Rome. I took notes in two ways. I took notes in moleskin journals, which I, I love. Like I just love the tactile feeling of a good moleskin. Um, I'll probably never give those up. Uh, but I've transitioned most of my note taking to Rome. So Moleskin journals, that was one way. The other way I took notes was I would open up an email in Gmail and just start taking notes in the email and like it just gets stuck in the drafts folder. It's great. You never lose it. It's available wherever you are. Um, those are the two ways I took notes. Not anymore. Now I use Rome for everything. Absolutely love it. Uh, I think Rome is a good example of why you can't always wait for triangulation to go after a company. Uh, by the time I caught on to Rome, like the Rome cult had already exploded and like they had already closed the round and whatever, it was too late. But uh, I would totally, totally back that company. Um, it's just powerful. Like, I think the tool today, as you know, because you're a user, is like it's, the UI is not great. There's some friction in learning how to use it. Um, but once you learn how to use it, it's amazing. And the more you use it, the more valuable it gets. And I think like they haven't even realized like 1% of the potential. Um, so for your listeners who um, haven't been exposed to Rome cult yet, like the, the key feature, although it's not the only feature is that like in the note taking app, you can create bi-directional links. So it makes it really easy to connect one topic to the next and to flip back and forth between them. And like what I, <laughs> I don't know how they would actually make this happen, but I think like the real power of like the Rome like thought network uh, will come into play when they figure out ways to break down the silos between users. So like I've marked something as, you know, like fundraising thoughts. And if I like want to make that public, then it would link to everyone else who has had fundraising thoughts in the past. And now they're all networked together and you can like go look at that mind map. I think that's like amazingly powerful potentially. I, I kind of see Rome being 
the uh, almost a consumer app itself in five years. Like imagine if you're reading a book, you know, Harry, you know, what's a, I don't know what's behind me getting things done by David Allen and, and you're writing notes on it. You can like find everyone else's notes on getting things done and like link them up and stuff. Like I, I, I could you see Rome being a social network in, in, in five years, like something that's very social that you, and a social, like a network for thoughts, um, but a social network for thoughts. Is that something you think it could become? It's a hundred percent. Like I think that Wikipedia is like the world's knowledge, like the world's facts organized in one place. And I think Rome has the potential to be the world's knowledge organized, right? Uh, which is like actually much more powerful than Wikipedia. Wikipedia is great as a, like a base resource, but it doesn't actually help you do much. Whereas I could be like the next step, going from information to knowledge. I feel like the greatest feat Rome could do is convince the education system that they are credible because Wikipedia has surely convinced the education system that they're not and you can't cite it ever. So that would be, that would be a win, a win for Rome. But yeah, I, I like, what do you, what do you think about the style of, like, it seems like their, their CEO uh, who's, who's extremely talented, but he like, he doesn't, he's not the typical archetype of like a, of a, of a typical founder where like went to Stanford, you know, computer, I don't think he went to Stanford. He seems like like different. He seems like he's just doing his own thing and because he's a bloody genius and he, he knows what he's doing, it's, it's, it's kind of caught on and he's kind of winning. Do you, do you think they're, well, one, it, do you agree with that um, about him as a founder? Like he's slightly, like, do you think he's kind of different of a founder compared to many founders? Or is he just like every other founder and every founder is unique in their own right? Uh, every founder is unique, right? We'll, we'll start there. Uh, no, I mean, he's like the prototypical, like product driven founder and his yeah. product is just very like cerebral or esoteric, which makes him like a little bit different, right? Like you could have a product driven founder who's like selling shoes and they're like much more relatable is not the right word, but like consumery because like, that's what they do. Right. Whereas like his product is all about like the organization of information, very esoteric subject. Um, but that's what he is. He's just a product focused founder. And I think that that's ultimately, I think that's what you want to invest in. It's what we want to invest in. Right. Um, let me, let me give you my, uh, my 20 year vision for Rome. That's like unsolicited. Like Connor, the CEO has not asked me for this, but here's where I think they go in 20 years. Like this is the biggest vision. Uh, if you believe like the transhumanists and like the singularity, I think like Rome could be like a key step on the way to the singularity. So once you've got brain machine interface, which we've got some companies that are working on, we've invested in some and there's plenty out there. You can imagine like the first step would be uh, Rome is a note taking app, just taking notes from your thoughts, which is great and letting you network those things together. Uh, but then as we talked about, what if you break down silos between people? So now you've got like me recording my notes via thought into Rome that then network with other people's thoughts recorded into Rome. Right. And so then you have like this transhuman like knowledge network that is just like organically created throughout the day by everybody. How amazing would that be? Yeah, that would be, that would be cool. I, I would be a fan for sure. Uh, I would love to see that happen. <laughs> So what, what do you, what are some other, like, I have some other thoughts on just the industry, but what, I'm curious, is there anything that's going on in, uh, in tech or like in startups that is like 
particularly interesting to you at the moment? Any trends, any startups that are getting funded? If there's anything you want to bring up that is potentially top of mind? And if not, that's fine, but wanted to see if you have, you have anything. Uh, sure. I mean, I think, you know, we, one of the topics of the day right now is the this Section 230, uh, uh, like, executive order that Trump just signed today, and, like, the implications that that has for, like, the future of tech. Um, you know, ostensibly, it's to keep companies from, you know, expressing political opinions online uh, and trying to stay neutral. I think it's super dangerous, right, because you have a president who's clearly politically motivated, right? Like, he could have done, he could have signed this executive order years ago. He signed it today because Twitter decided to fact check him. Um, so it's a political, it's a political move. And you don't really know like how broadly he would want it enforced. So you could start enforcing it on people who like are clearly anti-Trump and that basically kills a website like Twitter because like they can't be responsible for every piece of content posted on the site. And that's what he'd be pushing for. Um, but what about like Amazon? You know, what if like Trump hates Jeff Bezos, right? So do you take away the protection from Amazon and you let anybody uh, sue someone who writes a negative review that maybe like is salacious or do you let people sue people who write positive reviews because the product actually sucks? Um, what happens to all of these companies? I think they all leave the U S rather than shut down. Right. So it's just like a very, very dangerous step to take. Can you, um, um, I don't know if you know this better than I do, but I, I don't understand it that well. I know that, that in the executive order, Trump is proposing that the protection, like the, the live, like Twitter will um, not have the liability protection anymore or something along those lines or not just Twitter, but any social media um, network. What can you do? Do you know what that means? Like, do you know what liability protection Twitter has? Uh, like, can you describe that? Cause I'm not full. I haven't fully understood that yet. Sure. So the way that it works, as I understand it, I used to be a lawyer, but a terrible lawyer. So this has like some expertise behind it, but not a whole lot. Um, if you are a platform company, then you are not responsible for the content posted on your platform within certain bounds, um, or there are safe harbors associated with it, right? So if you're Twitter and someone posts copyrighted content illegally on your platform, the copyright owner can tell Twitter, hey, it's copyrighted content, like you've got to pull it down, and Twitter will pull it down within like 48 hours, and they have zero legal liability as long as they comply within that safe harbor, right? Or if I tweet something that is libelous on Twitter, like I, the user, am potentially liable, Twitter is not liable for that content because they're just like a neutral platform. Um, and so like any website that's out there today that has any sort of user-generated content on it, like relies on these safe harbors and this provision to exist because there's like really no way to control what a billion people around the world are posting on your platform, right? Um, if this law goes away and I post copyrighted content on Twitter, the copyright owner could sue Twitter directly and without any sort of safe harbor. And I think like the statutory fines for like a copyright violation are like, they can be like $10,000 or $100,000. And so you could just imagine like the crushing liability that would fall on these companies. Yeah, that would, that would not be good, um, at all. That would be 
almost debilitating to to the to the networks. Does I'm sure there's. It's not like Trump will sign this executive order and then it's just like in, right? It needs to get passed by the by by the courts, or is it just is this just because it's an executive order? Is it is this a thing as of today? I, I mean, in theory, an executive order doesn't have to doesn't have to get passed by anybody. It's just the president saying like this law exists today and this is how I'm going to interpret it and how I want it enforced, right? And the president is in charge of enforcement. Um, what an executive order theoretically cannot do is it cannot say the law says you go left and I'm going to enforce it by saying we go right, right? Like the president, like an executive order cannot explicitly override congressional legislation. Otherwise we would just have a, a, a dictator, right? There, there'd be no reason to have Congress. Um, so like this executive order, I think is a pretty tortured way of trying to, uh, like crack down on the social media companies. And what they're going to do is challenge it in court and like a judge is going to have to say like, is this executive order legal or would it contravene like the express wishes of Congress? Um, if the courts rule in favor of Trump's executive order, I would think that Cong I mean, certainly the house, uh, which is controlled by Democrats today, but I would think even the GOP controlled Senate would like strongly consider uh, strengthening Section 230 and making it ex more explicit in whatever way they needed to to combat the executive order. Um, otherwise, like I see, like tech companies just fleeing the U.S. and like changing their domicile because they're not going to shut down. I've seen for some reason New Zealand be like popular in in on tech Twitter, like people joking like they want to move to New Zealand. Um, I mean, I, I had a, for my last company, I had a, our, our chief, uh, editor lived in New Zealand and she was probably the nicest person I ever met. So like maybe, maybe New Zealand will be the next Silicon Valley. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I love Canada. It's close enough. We could, uh, we could all migrate a little bit North. Well, they, are you familiar with Andrew Wilkinson of tiny capital? Mm, I'm not. So Andrew is kind of like the Warren Buffett of tech companies. He he owns Dribble. He owns WeWork Remotely. He owns like fifty. Uh, he owns fifty companies um, plus, and he's like kind of he's just an investor and a, a kind of like an M and A kind of guy. And he lives in Canada. And he was on a podcast where he was saying because he lives in Canada, it's kind of like price arbitrage because the dollar the dollar goes farther in Canada. And it's like, it was like 30% farther. So I feel like it's even a smart business idea too. Like Canada has a good government for, uh, for business. They obviously want people to move there. Like I, I did. And like Toronto is blowing up. Montreal is blowing up in tech. Like it will be interesting to see if like Canada will grow from America's problems. I mean, I, I think it's already benefiting a lot from some of our internal domestic politics. Um, I mean, when Trump came into office and started cracking down on legal high-skilled immigration, like Canada liberalized their laws. And we've seen a ton of folks who would have normally come to the U.S. to start companies have gone to Ontario to start companies. Um, and so you know, when we launched Alpha Bridge, we said we'd invest in North America. I didn't really think we'd be investing in a bunch of Canadian companies, but we have looked a lot in Canada and have found some, some great opportunities up there. Um, companies that, like I said, in prior years would have been founded here. The other thing is that Canada has some amazing R&D credits for startups. Um, 
like, I don't know the specifics, but I want to say like one-to-one matching for investment in R&D that's made by Canadian companies, which includes, by the way, like engineers you hire, right? So like once you factor in like the, the currency arbitrage and the Canadian like R&D credits, so much cheaper to start a company in Canada. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of obscene. Like I, I never thought about moving, you know, moving countries at all. But they well, and I don't plan on it now. But like, luckily, we have a, you know, Canada is just right over there. If it's ever <laughs> if it's ever something something to do, um, to finish off, what um what companies or what spaces. Um, are interesting to you as an investor right now? Like, what are you what are you looking at? What's interesting? Who do you like? You know, if who's your dream company to invest in right now? I guess as a, as a VC, what what does the market look like for you at the moment? Yeah, so I think um, Rome. I'm all about Rome these days. There's a lot of potential there. Um, but that's certainly one. In terms of space, I think that. Uh, any company that touches on national security is is pretty compelling right now. Um, you know, ever since the '90s, we've lived in a world where the U.S. has been totally dominant, and that's not the case anymore. Um, China has come a long way. They have a very concrete plan for supplanting the U.S. as like the global economic power, and probably not like I, I'm sure they don't have a desire to go to like actual like hot war with the U S just like we have no desire to go to, to war with them, but they certainly have a desire to like impose their will and their culture, um, in like greater Asia, if not more globally, which I think is bad for a lot of reasons and, and certainly bad for, for us citizens. Um, and I think that we're like just on the cusp of like reacting to that strongly as a country. So there's going to be a lot of investment, that filters into things like domestic manufacturing and automation and AI and like think about like not just defense tech, but think about like everything that goes into American like hegemony and soft power around the globe. I think there'll be a lot more investment and interest in seeing that like grow here domestically. That's like a really broad answer, but like it's something that I'm thinking about a lot. Ever since I listened to a podcast with Palmer Lucky talking about um, Palmer Lucky, for those who don't know, um, co- founded Oculus and is now the co-founder of Anduril, um, which is in, which is in the space that you're that Jake's talking about. Ever since he started talking about the opportunity in defense um, for America and like building like startups for that, I've been so interested in that space too. Like, like the fact like the fact that like his answer of, of like why are you doing this is like, well, do you, do you want China and Russia to do it first? You know, and it's just such a it's so interesting. It's startups and kind of in some capacity politics. Um, combined um, to, 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 to help America be a better country and a safer country, which is, uh, I think, really exciting. And it's cool that you're looking at, the, looking at that space to fund. But when people say, like, why, why do you care about defense tech? Or why would you invest in it? Um, there's a lot of reasons. I think it's super interesting. I think when you invest in defense tech, you have a, you're more likely investing in, like, fundamental science, which pushes, like, all of society forward. Um, but, like, one, one question I like to ask folks is, okay, so think back to the Cold War. Think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? It was one of the, the, the moments when we came the closest to like global annihilation. And the reason that happened is because we were terrified about nuclear missiles being based, what, 70 miles off the coast of Florida, right? Uh, space is 20 miles up. 
And China and Russia both have plenty of satellites in orbit. And I would be shocked if they don't have warheads in orbit. I'd be shocked if we don't have warheads in orbit. Technically banned, right? But it's pretty hard to tell what's in a payload when you send up a big satellite. Um, that's 20 miles away. That's your neighbor. China's our neighbor. Russia's our neighbor. And like, if you were terrified during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you should be terrified today. So. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting perspective, um, and it, it definitely gives a, a yeah new perspective that I hadn't thought of, but I, I appreciate. Well, is there any any last words, uh, any last topics, events, or anything you want to leave the listeners with before we close out this episode of uh, Sunday Roundup? Man, I, I thought nuclear weapons just twenty miles away was was really the way to end. I totally agree. Uh, we'll leave ever everyone pon- pondering that that fact. Um, well, cool. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to uh, great to chat. I think I'm gonna use Sunday Roundup as just an opportunity to just chat with all my Twitter friends that I haven't like talked to before, but like you will just like jam with on Sunday Roundup. So I appreciate you coming on. Looking forward to doing more in the future whenever we want to coordinate that. And um, see you on Twitter. Yeah, man, it's been great. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you for tuning in to that episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I really want to thank our sponsors of today's episode, Turing, for supporting June's episodes of Forward Thinking Founders. If you are a startup founder or a CEO and have any need for technical talent or need an engineering team, specifically a remote engineering team, I highly encourage you to check out Turing.com and see what they can do for you. They have a two-week risk-free trial where you can check out what they have going on. And if you go over to Turing.com, T-U-R-I-N-G.com, Tell them Matt Sherman sent you. Tell them Matt Sherman 6, 6 being the month of June. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I'll see you tomorrow. Peace.